The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, the one of the songs, lines that we just sang alluded to thieves breaking in and moths destroying, rust causing corrosion, the decay of life, how nothing here is permanent, nothing lasts. Will you please now make us mindful of that, help us to to understand that and to see in it unavoidable evidence that we really aren't all that big of a deal. We are flowers quickly fading here today and gone tomorrow as, as the line goes. We stand and we speak and we act and then we fall down and go away. The only thing that lasts is you. You're the creator, you are the one who reigns, you are, you are the God over all of this. We are dependent. We really aren't that big of a deal. And yet in that, you love us. The psalmist marvels over this and asks, what can man be that you are even mindful of him? What can a person be that you care about her? even notice her. Amazingly, you do. We, we are nothing, and yet you notice us. You made us. You made us to know you. You provided a way for us to know you, even, even though rebels, even though estranged, alienated from you, you stepped in yet again to create a way back. Because astonishingly, you care about people. This should call from us an attitude of marveling, an attitude of thanksgiving, and an attitude of wise, humble submission. As Jesus calls us to that today, calls us, calls all who will listen, in fact, calls us to a wise and humble, complete and total submission, allegiance. Lord, would you give us all ears to hear? It will strike us in different ways at different times this morning as we work through the passage. It'll, it'll feel heavy and it'll feel uh, full of obligation because it is. It can't be any other way for creatures dealing with their God, their creator. We are under obligation. That is true. And then at other times it may appear incredibly hopeful and beyond reason good. It can't be anything other than that either because as creatures fallen in rebellion that there would be opportunity to be allied with you in allegiance. That is what shouldn't be, but you have made it so, and so help us with 
to, to listen and to deal with what is, what is heavy and, and what is remarkably hopeful. Help us to deal with both of those things, to deal with them rightly and to, to respond in thankful submission. And towards that end, Lord, skipping all the way to the end of this morning, I pray that you would make and that you would then further peace between us and you. Some of us here don't know you at all, don't even know that we don't know you. Would you make peace between people and you today for the first time, make peace. And then a bunch of us, Lord, who do know you, we are running around in insanity. Would you bring us to peace beneath your hand. Make us like, as the psalmist puts it, weaned children sitting in your lap of peace. So do that this morning, Spirit of God. Would you move through this room and have your way here with us? Amazingly, would you stoop to attend to us, small creatures? You speak words from your scripture, speak life to us from your word, and build up your church to the honor of the Son. And it is in his name that we pray. We turn our attention this morning to the end of Luke chapter 14, where we find a change in setting from where we've been at this meal at the Pharisee's house to back, back to the open road. Over the last couple of weeks, we've noticed Jesus at this meal, a leading Pharisee invited him over, but not a friendly invite. He invited him over to a setup because he invited over a bunch of other Pharisees and a bunch of other experts in the law to see if they could trap Jesus into doing something that would give them, give them grounds for an accusation. Particularly, they want him to heal on the Sabbath to show that he's ungodly. The irony in that is hard to escape. That he would do something of God to show that he's not of God. But they're initiating that with Jesus, trying to trap him. And what follows, he turns the tables and confronts their persistent, irrational resistance to him. The marked the attitude both of the general guest population in one piece, he addresses the general guests, and it also marked the attitude of the, of the host himself. In another piece, he addresses him. Everybody in the room, proud, not humble, resistant, not submissive, actually not looking to God for entrance into his kingdom. They say they are. This was brought up in both weeks and last week as well. They all appear righteous. They think of themselves as such. But when it comes down to it, refusing to submit to Jesus in faith, put you at odds with him. They remain as their own authorities, and they love themselves in their own ways, as all people do, and that's what the gospel comes to change. What Christ accomplishes is the breaking of this, this hold of sin on us that makes us irrationally resistant. It breaks the hold and then pays the penalty for that sin and, and sets us on a, on a new path where we are renewed and made new by, and this is an important piece of both weeks, by looking ahead to the time when he will lift up the humble, when he will repay those who are dependent on him repay them well as only a good God can. Repay us with blessing forever in the future. This is the core of Jesus' teaching as he confronts resistance and promises future blessing and calls us to believe in that and to submit to him. That came up often at the meal and now the setting changes. So move into the last bit of this chapter. He leaves the meal and it says he is back walking on the road again towards Jerusalem with great crowds accompanying him. And if you look at that, 
at great crowds accompanying him, if you were able to like, kind of like stand off to the side and look at that, it would appear that Jesus has a ton of followers. Because, literally, there are a lot of people following him. So there's a lot of followers, right? In one sense, yes, but they're not really followers, committed followers, as in disciples. There is a difference between following and following. And that difference is what he's going to address this morning in verses 25 to the end of the chapter, verse 45. He's going to talk about what it means to be, what's required of a person to be a disciple. To be a Christian, in other words, to be a follower of Jesus, one of his people, and not just following on. So we're going we're to look at this, what Jesus says about what's required, what the, the cost of commitment about a disciple, and kind of where the, where the line lies. And we're going to do that by looking at two different pieces of this passage, but first let me read it. This is Luke 14, verses 25 through the end of the chapter, verse 45. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use, either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The end of Luke 14. He makes two observations. Here's the first about the requirement. Jesus requires complete allegiance from his disciples. Jesus requires complete allegiance from his disciples. He begins by turning to those who are accompanying him and who have, in some sense, come to him and following after him, and he talks to them about, if anyone would, this is a wide open offer, if anyone would come to me and follow me. So he's talking to people who have come and followed about coming and following. Clearly, he's saying there's a difference here. He's going to elaborate on what's required without which, three times he says, 26, 27, 33, the, the summary verse, without which you cannot be my disciple. There is no third way here. Not a follower, follower in some way, sort of quasi in the middle. 
No, he drops a line. You can or you can't. Two paths. And he's going to tell us where the line falls. And the line falls at complete allegiance. It is complete in its scope, as in total in breadth. It is allegiance in every category of life, in every situation, every aspect of existence. There is nothing outside of this claim. Total in scope. And it is an allegiance that is complete or total in rank, you might say in depth. It is one of supremacy. So it is all across the board, everything you can possibly think of, and Jesus is on top, unchallenged, unrivaled in every category. It's that kind of allegiance. It is total, complete. That's what he's getting at when he uses that hate speech, the hate language, verse 26, which sounds really harsh to our ears today. sounds quite odd, in fact. Particularly if you know anything about the Bible, you can also hear Jesus or hear other writers of the Bible saying things like, honor your father and mother. Love your spouse. Love your kids. So what do, you, what do you do with this? Well, it sounds very odd to us. But that kind of language, this, this kind of language of hate, would have made plenty of sense back in that day. They used it commonly in categories and in situations of emphatic either-or comparison. So clearly, there are times in life when we can and can speak of I love my wife, and I love ice cream. Those aren't contradictory. Those aren't in competition with us, unless they were to become in competition. And in some setting or another, if there would be an either or, either my wife or ice cream, then you'd say, well, obviously you have to then go one way towards the ice cream. No. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> Right? Why does everybody laugh? Because that's stupid. Because that's stupid. No, there's not any kind of like, well, a little bit of this and a little bit of that. No, it's either or. And when it's an either or, the language they use commonly to, to differentiate that is not a little bit of and a little bit of, you know, kind of prefer one. Love and hate. Either or. And there are situations in life where a writer, in this case a speaker, Jesus, wants to say, we have an either-or situation here. And you must, I'm telling you as the Lord, love me and hate everything else. By comparison, there is a complete and total separation not a shared allegiance. There are no rivals. It is 100% and zero. If you want to come after me, I'm calling out and placing this opportunity before everyone who has ears here, says Jesus. Anyone who would want to come after me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife, we could add in husband and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even himself, his own life, Anyone who won't do that cannot be my disciple. Cannot. 
By comparison to me, love of me is so total and supreme that by comparison, you must hate all others and give no rival allegiance at all to anything. These are the closest relationships a person can imagine. List it all out there. Delineated one after the other. They are our loved ones. They are the ones closest to us, the ones in tightest relationship to us. And, as an aside, that may tell us something, maybe a little hint there, about what might be the, the strongest challenge to this kind of allegiance comes from these people who exert the greatest influence over us. So maybe if we're talking about allegiance to Jesus, there's a little alert here. That might be made most difficult by those people that are closest to us. If those types of really close loved ones set up rival value systems, call us away from Jesus, call us to think and to love and to, and to want things contrary to Jesus, we may have to consciously say, no. Even to those closest to us. If they become rivals to Jesus. So maybe an alert there. But the main reason he brings up family these closest family members, and even our own lives, and that's where we ourselves are mentioned there too, is because of the closeness, the dearness of it, to make us say, whoa, whoa. Jesus, more than my own kids? I jump in front of a moving car for my kids, and you're telling me, by comparison, I have to hate them in allegiance to Jesus. Whew. Jesus more than my own spouse, more than my own mother who birthed me? I'd do anything for her. Anything for him. And you're telling me, by comparison, I have to hate him, hate her, treat him, her, even my own life, as if it is dead to me. By comparison. Now, again, 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 if you follow all that through and in complete loyalty to Jesus, you're going to find places in the Bible where it says, love your wife like Christ loved the church. You're going to find that this kind of absolute, 100%, complete, total allegiance to Jesus is going to send you back to lay down your life for her. So you'll find that in the Bible for sure. But here's the point of by comparison, total allegiance, dead to you. He grasps these relationships because they are the best way humanly possible to delineate this point. Absolute, total, complete, across the board, supreme, Jesus. And if you won't do that, cannot be my disciple. Three times. It cannot be more clear. That's what I'm saying. Me more than anything. More than my own life, in fact? Yes. Verse 27, you have to carry your own cross and follow after me. To carry a cross, we talked about this back in chapter 9 in a similar context, in fact. To carry a cross is not just to carry a great burden or to endure painful situations cross back then was the instrument of public execution. That's all that it was. For the worst of criminals, it was designed 
to be awful, brutal, painful, and shameful, ending in an excruciating slow death on purpose. If you ever saw someone carrying a cross, he was headed to his execution, condemned and about to die. He's a dead man walking. His life is over. Only people carrying crosses are dead men. And Jesus requires of his disciples to carry a cross and come after him. Following him, you come to die. Complete, total allegiance is required. A reckoning on the part of the disciple that I have been crucified with Christ. I'm following one who himself is carrying a cross. This is a one-way trip here. He and I are headed to death, and I no longer live, but I live a life owned by him. Essentially what he's saying here is that there's a full recognition, a full embracing, if you put all these things together, a, a full, I get it, and I grasp it, and I own it, a full embracing of the lordship of the Lord, of the rule of this king. I don't have any other relationship or love that exerts more pull in me. I don't have any other filter for life. I don't have any other priorities that are higher, says the disciple. He is first in the level of heart, level of affection, loyalty, values, perspectives, viewpoint, whatever word you can grab there, and then I, that's going to spread out into all of the things I do and say and am about. It is surrendered obedience. It is total. That's what it means. What does it look like? Well, because it is so wide, you could find an example in every single thing in life. But let me work on a couple things that kind of are implied by this passage and the setting. One of the main problems that they have here is actually still a problem that we have today. The exclusivity and authority of Jesus. Nobody has a problem here with Jesus walking around talking about God. They have a problem when he claims to be that God and claims to tell people this is the way it is. We have a problem when he claims to be this God and claims to redefine for us as he does throughout all the Bible. This is what adultery actually means. This is what murder actually is. These are the grounds for divorce. This is the proper boundary for sexuality. This is where you come from, created by God. This is where you're going to the seat of judgment. This is the only way to come past the seat of judgment into the kingdom. Faith in me crucified alone. That's what gives everybody here heartburn. That's what gives us heartburn. That's what gives the world heartburn. Nobody has a problem with Jesus being one of the alternatives that we listen to sometimes for advice. When he gets pushy, that we start having a problem. And he is supremely pushy, as is fitting of a king who reigns. So we find presented to us, perhaps before us solely, or perhaps before us with friend, relative, standing right next to us in a contrary spot, 
presented to us all of the authority of Jesus as he, as he defines in the Bible what righteousness looks like. As he defines for us who we are and where we're going. As he defines for us what the gospel actually is. The gospel is not about our works. The gospel is about his work on the cross. When he defines that for us in the scriptures, it gives us pause. And then he says, here's the line. I lay out in front of you the truth. Am I the authority or not? Without complete allegiance to me, you cannot be my disciple. That will give us difficulty, perhaps. It will certainly give the world difficulty. Ironically, though, it would also give the world much help. Have you thought about, we have, the world struggles with two problems that are actually rooted in the same problem. I mean, we've got a bunch of problems, but we struggle with the problem of, we, we want, some sort of freedom and we want some sort of safety constantly and so we are we are constantly moving around looking for something or someone that'll make us safe that will secure us in some way and then also we we want to be free to choose what we want well these are these are really difficult things to to reconcile as we stand on shifting sand what should we believe about any of the things I just listed. Well, I don't know, what time is it? It changes by the minute these days. These weeks, these months, these years. It changes constantly. Well, how can I be secure knowing that this is what I stand for today, this is what I'm about today, this is how I'm going to live my life today. Oh, I guess that was wrong, I should have lived this way. Oh, I guess that was wrong, I should have lived... What do you do with that? There is no standard. There is nothing to stand on. It's all sh shifting and, and running away. Sand beneath me leaves me incredibly insecure, unfounded because I have no foundation. And here's the answer to that. The God who made us and rules over us and knows what is true and is wise and is strong and is eminently has proven that to us at the cross. There is only one way to be saved. We, we bristle at that. We don't like that. But we miss the whole point. To be saved. There is a way to be saved. There's only one standard for this. We bristle at the one. But there's a standard within which life exists and thrives. Because that's the, how the good God made it. There would be a great answer to many of our society's problems if we would see that total allegiance to this Jesus is actually incredibly good for us. We could also consider what he says at the end in the summary of verse 33 about how all of my possessions are renounced. What, is the, what does this total authority look like? Well, it looks like I'm discussing there the authority of Jesus, the, the, the supremacy of Jesus, the exclusivity of Jesus. But now shift it a little bit and consider something else. A disciple in total allegiance to Jesus realizes that all of my life is a life of dependence. 
a disciple as he thinks through, as she thinks through life and thinks through renouncing of possessions and a carrying of cross, realizes my life is not my own. My possessions are not my own. My time is not my own. My future is not my own. I am all owned. I'm accountable then to the one who owns me. And a disciple who realizes this and realizes the goodness of the one to whom he or she is accountable, therefore, is then not bitter, not worried, not arrogant or rebellious, but happily patient at rest like that weaned child sitting in a parent's lap, okay with it. I'm held by one who knows far more than I do, is far stronger than I am, and has it has it, has life. I'm okay. I'm owned and I'm directed and then empowered to live by this owner, by this God. Empowered to live very happily, very aggressively, in fact, very confidently. There's a great irony that, that rest leads to activity. That humility leads to confidence. Humbly dependent, I can step out. I don't have anything at risk here. God holds me. At rest here, I can act fearlessly. Empowered by God's Spirit in me, using all the resources and all, all the skills and all the opportunities that he gives to me, says the disciple. He gives to me not for my own ends, but for his ends. So I'm, I'm an actor in his initiative, in his plan. I read in a paper... Uh, yesterday, the day before, about a, a, an esteemed French actress who described herself, somebody was asked, the interviewer asked her if she thought of herself as an artist, and she said, no, I'm more like the canvas. I'm just the actor. She meant the writers, the, the screenwriters that are, the real creative forces are writing onto her as she displays their genius. We are the canvas. active, confidently at rest. A disciple who thinks in total allegiance to him says, all of me is yours for your glory. And that's really, really, really for my good. Because you're good. In the words of the verses, the disciple says, my possessions I have renounced. All that I have, and I do have, but I have it for you because it's actually yours. My life, as I would call it, is over, and I lay it at your feet and walk with you. The relationships in which I exist, I exist in them for you, beneath your hand, beneath your authority, not theirs. That's what supreme, total allegiance to Jesus looks like. You say, here, Lord, here am I, what would you do with me? That is hard. And there's no dodging that. In fact, right after Jesus says that, he then tells us to think about it, which takes us to the next point. 
think carefully about the cost and the necessity of complete allegiance to Jesus. So if you're tracking with what I, what I said earlier, what I prayed earlier, in fact, even, there's, there's, the, there's the hardness in this, there's the heaviness in that. The absolute and total language is stiff. And it continues here into the next point. But keep following because there's something, something good here, something, I think, hope-filled here. We are to think carefully about the cost and the necessity of complete allegiance to Jesus. After issuing the basic challenge, he moves into these two simple parables, both of which encourage careful evaluation. He wants us to hear what he said and then to think about it. But to think for two different reasons, to think in two different trajectories. First, think carefully about the cost. He just laid it out. It'll cost you everything as you take up your cross and follow him. It's important to grasp that. Verse 28, think of a man who wants to build a tower, wants to make an addition on his property. Who would just start to build? Just go buy a brick and start to build one at a time without first sitting down and figuring out how much is this going to cost me? What's the whole thing look like? How much is this going to cost and can I afford it? And if he can't, he won't start because otherwise he'd get half done and everybody would mock him saying, look, they'd mock his, his foolishness and they'd also mock his inability. This man began to build and was not able to finish and this is the standing evidence of that, the half-built structure. That's Jesus' word to us about how we're supposed to think about the cost of following him, the cost of discipleship. Salvation in Jesus comes with a cross, with a dying to self. And it comes with alienation from the world, perhaps. With a loss of resources and time and freedom and ease, perhaps. We don't know exactly everything it's going to cost us. What we know that what he says at the very beginning is all in. Pick up your cross. All in. Everything on the table. And come follow me. So have you grasped that yet? But he tells us this. He wants us to think about this. Not just to scare us and, and not just to make us say, certainly not to make us say, uh, you know, maybe not. Maybe, maybe I'll, I won't then. But he tells us to alert us to something, to help you notice what is commonly presented to us, and is very attractive, but it's commonly presented in the world. It kind of comes up in our own minds. The deal that's too good to be true. You know how those public service announcements about scams warn us, if it sounds too good to be true, it is too good to be true. It's a scam. So be alert if it sounds too good to be true. There is a great scam circulating in the world. And it is very attractive. There is this idea that a person can be a follower of Jesus, and pick whatever word you want here, a disciple, a person of God, a Christian, a, a forgiven person, a saved person, headed to heaven, whatever kind of language there, follower of Jesus, a disciple, and yet also still live life however you please. 
according to whatever you please. According to whatever seems right, what will help you get along, what feels good, what's comfortable. Life in step with the world, aligned with my own values and the values of those around me. Just like everyone else, just like always, and yet also a disciple of Jesus, saved, going to heaven. This is wonderful. All for the low, low price of free. And the bonus gift. Countless blessings on top, on top, on top, on top, now and in the future. Well, sure, sign me up. Pick up the phone and I'm going to call in. That's out there. That's out there in the church. That I can be, so it goes, that I can be a person who has received from Jesus all these blessings and all these goodnesses, that I, I have received him as the one who saves me, but I will remain my own Lord. I will do as I please. And Jesus wants to make very clear here, that's not true. That's not true. Count the cost. There is one. Total allegiance. Don't try to follow me until you've heard that and grasped that. Because at some point you will realize, at some point you will, you will discover, oh, and maybe there will be mocking from other people as, as you realize, oh, I'm less about Jesus than I thought I was. And as you turn away in, in hypocrisy, people will mock you. Or maybe at the very end you'll realize, oh, no. Assuming that you're a follower of Jesus, you're going to find out that you weren't, and he's going to say, I never knew you. So he wants to alert us to that, that there's, there's a scam out there that is not true. There is, in fact, a cost. You, all of you. It costs you, all of you. So think carefully about that. And then, so you may think, yikes, I, yeah, I don't want to do that. I don't want to pay that cost. I guess I won't then. And then he moves on to the next parable and says, oh, but you need to also consider the necessity of this. Because if you think about both these things, you're going to realize, wow, there is a high cost. I must surrender. And then secondly, and I can't not pay that cost. That's a high cost. And I have to pay it. Like the first parable, the second one is also about careful thought. Deliberation is the word it uses there. But the two parables are not redundant. Here now is a king, a small king, a small army, and he hears of another king who is coming, 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 a king who is coming. an army twice as large. Back in those days, there wasn't technology to offset numbers. Twice as large is terrible. This king doesn't have the option of saying, you know, I count up the numbers, I'm out. I don't want to play. I can't afford that. No, no thanks. The guy building the tower has that option. He can do the math and say, I'm, I'm just not going to start that. This guy does not have the option of not getting attacked by the king. The other king is forcing the situation 
the weak king, all he can do is decide how he will meet him when he comes. So think very carefully, deliberate. Do you want to fight or do you want to make peace? That's the point of the parable here. And do it quickly while there's still time. He hasn't yet arrived. While he is still a great way off, it says there in verse 32. While he is still a great way off, make peace. Inquire of this coming king. What are the terms for peace? Or think you can win, you know, go ahead and fight. But think very carefully and with urgency because when he comes, it will be too late. Verse 33, the summary statement of what he's been getting at all throughout all this here. So therefore, literally, thus, in this manner, therefore, like the weaker king, if you don't give up totally, you cannot be my disciple. That is, you can't survive in peace the coming of the mighty king. You have to give up. It'll cost you everything. But do you see the necessity of it? You have to give up if you hope to live at the coming of the king. If you hope to, the word there, if you hope to be at peace with the coming king. And there's the necessity, and here's also the turn right there. If you follow this, I'm going to talk about the necessity first, but if you follow this, there's the turn to hope. The necessity. We exist right now. As Jesus speaks to them and as he speaks to us right now, we exist right now with a king who is on the march coming. And there is only one way to make peace. He has told us what the terms for peace are. Without them, we are at war in a contest we cannot win. We stand condemned for our sins, so says the Lord Jesus. We have been offered one single payment for that, a narrow door through which we must pass, the crucified Lord Jesus. There it is. There he is held out to everyone. Here's the terms for peace. But when I come, it'll be too late. Choose, choose for that now. Choose that path now, rather than the path of resistance. You must make peace with him. It'll cost you everything. Get a lay down all of your life. The only way to take Jesus is in faith. And faith, by definition, is trusted, surrendered dependence. Necessity. But do you then realize? Roll that over then. What he's saying is that there's a way for peace. Rest on that for a second. We spend a whole bunch of time either resisting the whole idea here, no, 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 denying that there's a king coming. And we miss, oh man, we miss. Right now, there's an offer on the table for peace. What would peace be? If you've been tracking all through this gospel, you understand what he means by peace. He's just been using repeatedly the imagery of feast. Peace, as Jesus presents it in this context of, of king and, and people, 
peace does not just mean, okay, I won't kill you. Peace means come in and sit down at this feast with me. That's peace. Come in. Come in and sit down and enjoy my bounty. Enjoy me. Enjoy these other ones here. Enjoy this environment that is all healed and all made right by me, the good God who made you for this, who made you for this with me and with other people at rest in, in wholeness. Shalom is the word in the Bible, and it means more than just not fighting. It means whole, united, one, peace, joy, rest, delight, place God made for us as people to be with him. There's a way to get that. A way to get that. And the good God has provided, sent his son to the cross to make way for us into the feast. This is the offer you can't refuse. Before the Godfather. But it's the offer that in your right mind you don't want to refuse. You must. You can speak that in the context of judgment. You must. You can speak that in the context of party and celebration and joy. They're two sides of the same coin. You must to avoid judgment, which will bring you into the feast. It will bring you at peace with the God who made you, the one for whom your heart resonates. Even if you don't identify that, the thing you're searching for, the one you want, is the one who made you. It's God himself. We must submit to him in total allegiance. Otherwise, the somber note at the end will be cast out as worthless like ruined salt. There's an analogy here in 34, 35 that wouldn't have made a lot of sense to us today. But the examples he uses of soil on salt on the soil or salt on a manure pile, it was used as a catalyst. It was used in a bunch of different ways. Salt was useful. But it's possible for salt to, to lose its chemical potency and it would still kind of look like salt. It would still kind of look like what it was professing to be like the whole crowd of people following after Jesus, kind of looks like people who are following Jesus. It still would look like something, but within it, it isn't anymore. The only thing it's actually useful for is to be thrown out, to be cast out. Language Jesus has used several times already. cast out of the kingdom to be lost if you follow but don't really follow if you fail to pay the high price of total allegiance you cannot be my disciple you just end up cast out he who has ears to hear let him hear do you have ears to hear are you hearing in the position of one in the crowd who is following but not actually following Repent and turn to him and trust him. 
how you find peace. That's most of the people that he's talking to here. I recognize, though, that most of the people that I'm, and I have to be fair to that, that's what's there, but I recognize that many of the people that I'm talking to here, many of us, we're in a different spot. You're hearing all this. We also need to hear this, though. We need to hear it properly. We're hearing this. And you should take in lack of surrender. What's he saying about lack of total allegiance? Hear that and look at the salt analogy. It looks like salt, but what's it actually good for? Nothing. Nothing. So he's going to throw me out? He's going to cast me out? Well, to be fair, I have to pause there and say, Ask that question of yourself. That's kind of the point of the story, that there are a bunch of people who assume they're followers but actually aren't. you got to ask that of yourself. But don't ask that of yourself, reference last week, in a hypercritical, hyper-condemning, hyper-navel-gazing way If you find yourself, you find what's resonating in you as you think about this is, ah, I see it, I hear it, I I agree with that, I want that, but man, who's like that? That's how a Christian resonates with this. A Christian hears that, so you take from that some encouragement. That's Christ in me, who both wants this and is grieved by my failure at it. Take some encouragement from that and then move on. As a Christian, then, how do I hear this? I want that, but I'm not that. Anybody here in total allegiance? Don't raise your hand, but none of us could raise our hand, right? Total allegiance? In every category of life, Jesus is supreme, and in every one of those categories, in every way, all of his values, all of his perspectives, all of his desires are the ones you have. And then what he would have you to do and to be in every situation, that's exactly what you do all the time, total allegiance. No, you're still a sinner, which by definition is not total allegiance. Who is like this? Who is completely loyal, completely allied with God. Who actually did take up his cross? Who did renounce everything that he had? Well, not me. Not you. But Jesus for you. Follow this through. You see the high bar raised here. And one of our constant tendencies is to say, let's drop that a little bit. Eh, you know, nobody can do that. Nobody does that. Let's drop that a little bit. Let's make it a little more reasonable. You, you can't do that. Jesus does not allow that. He raises the bar and gives us an either-or setup here. You can't drop that. 
then we come along and we say, but I can't reach that. And then we either get frustrated, angry, God's so demanding of me, or we, we get angry at the guy who's talking about it. He's so demanding of me, so hard. Or we just kind of skip the conversation and move on. No, 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 sit under it. Christians, I'm talking to Christians, sit under that and feel from that. That's what I should be, and that is what I am not. And keep moving on and ask yourself, do I actually believe the gospel? Because, bless God, that's what Jesus is, and that for me. He does really require of you, Christian, that you be in total allegiance, and you really aren't, and he really was in your place. He was sent to earth and lived in total allegiance and carried his cross and died, in fact. So that, walk this through in your mind, so that first of all, your lack of total allegiance could be atoned for and you'd be at peace with God. And then secondly, grasping that, seeing that. As that Jesus is held up in front of you by the Spirit of God at work in you holds up that Jesus, what does he show you in that? There is a kind king been a lot about authority here there's a kind king there's a compassionate king who comes to help me there's a king of love who comes to fill in where I fall short as the spirit of God shows you that about this Jesus what happens is this Jesus is raised up in your eyes and you say oh he's more than just a dictator he's more than just a king in command of a powerful army he's a king of love and a king of grace and a king of mercy who came to save me and Jesus is lifted up in your eyes and what happens when things or people are lifted up in our eyes we are drawn to them yea become more loyal to them love them more We must see the requirement and see how far short we fall of it and then see what God has done to meet it in Jesus because that actually, that actually is what God uses in you to grow in you greater allegiance. Because Jesus is, is all the more beautiful than Jesus is all the more necessary and all the more sweet. Put another way. What overcomes the barriers to allegiance. Well, why don't we follow him? We fear what that would mean. I think it's a huge one. We fear what that would mean. We, we think very highly of ourselves in, in pride sometimes. Right? We wonder, we, we doubt, we wonder if it's, if it's really worth it. And how God overcomes those barriers to our allegiance is by showing us a Jesus who is beautiful. Who casts out fear. Fear of God and fear of the unknown. Showing us a Jesus who is almighty that properly puts us in our dependent place. And showing us a Jesus who has answered enough of the questions that, that doubt fades away. I, I know enough about him. No, he holds the present and holds the future. We must consider the requirements and how God has acted to meet them because that's actually how the barriers are taken down. And faith, tr 
trust in Jesus is grown. The beauty of Jesus is elaborated on. We are, we are one to him. Total allegiance to this Lord is required. And it is possible. Not, not, in, not in my works, but it is possible that I stand in God's sight as one who is loyal because of Jesus. And I can be grown in allegiance to see Jesus and trust him. Consider this, his attractiveness, his goodness, and surrender to him. Let me pray. Father, we are often challenged to face difficulties in trusting you. And you don't let us off the hook. We still are called to trust you. But you grow in us faith by lifting up Jesus. So would you do that in the eyes of us gathered here today now? You show him to be a good savior, a good and wise king, and win our hearts to him in growing loyalty and growing allegiance. Thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for Jesus. May he be Lord in our lives. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.